From Uniforms to Unicorns is sponsored by Brand 47 Coffee, which was founded by Holly and Alex, both first responders looking to create a sustainable business to pass on to their two sons with Down syndrome, Jax and Nico. Thinking about the future has always been in the forefront of their heads for their boys, creating meaningful employment and independence as adults. The only way to do that was to create it. Brand 47 Coffee Co. provides the most unique and fun-flavored coffee. Seriously, it is so good. Our Mine and Sharon's favorite is the Coco Loco. It's coconut-infused. It is to die for. All of their coffee is small batch and roasted to order. They are incredible people doing incredible things. Their vision is to keep the world caffeinated, to stay special, and be extra. You can find them at brand47coffee.com. Welcome to From Uniforms to Unicorns. This podcast is all about our experience as female corrections officers, our challenges, our triumphs, and our transitions out of the career. Lauren and I have always had a significant bond. Friends, moms, and business owners that happen to be in prison. Life attempted to separate us, but we always found a way back to each other. Through huge life milestones, tragedy, and random text messages saying, I thought of you today. We know there's huge curiosity surrounding these topics. And we aren't the only ones that struggle. There are also incredible stories just waiting to be shared. And we want this to be a safe place for us and you to talk about the often unspoken world of corrections. Grab a coffee, head out on a walk, or just take a break. Let me warn you, we have no idea what we're doing. <laughs> From uniforms to unicorns. Unicorns. Hey, Lauren here. Just wanted to remind you that some of the things that Sharon and I and our guests talk about on this podcast can have adverse effects or bring on triggers for experiences that you have had in the past. So we just wanted to give you a little bit of a warning before you listen to any of the podcast episodes and say, take care of yourself. And thank you again for being here and listening. (laughs) Hey, Sharon. Hey, Lauren. How's it going? Good. How are you? Good. Good. Ready. Ready to do this. Ready to do this. I know. Let's go. I know. It's so exciting. It's, I love, I love recording days. They're few and far between these days. So we try to actually, we have another one after this one today, which these will release in uh, 2023. Uh, But yeah, we, uh, we were so excited when we got the email back from this guest saying she would be on our podcast. We were like, what? Okay, let's do this. Uh, so today we have Janice Landry. She is an author, a Canadian author. Um, she does uh, incredible things. You have nine books, right, Janice? I have six. Don't put the pressure on me oh, now, Lauren. Holy nice. Anna. I'm, I'm just about to go off on holidays and low. I, I don't have three more in me right now. They're coming. I was going to say, I'm home. sure you have three more. Six. Okay. Six. So, <laughs> so by January, you'll have three out. So this nine more out. <laughs> oh, awesome. God. And we, we, uh, I've seen Janice, like I saw the silver lining book. So we'll talk about that one a little bit because we do talk about lots of things that you have in that book, but you have a new one out that we really want to talk about too. Uh, but I want to know a little bit about you. Of course, I read your bio and I follow you on all the social media things, but I want to know a little bit about you and how you got into writing and how you've been on this cool little journey. So tell us a little bit about you. Well, I grew up uh, in an area in Nova Scotia. It's about a 15 or 20 minute drive outside of Halifax in a little seaside community called Purcell's Cove. And it was a beautiful place to grow up in as a kid. And I'm from the era where we only came in to eat. Like there was when the streetlights came on, mom and dad be like, be home when it's dark, you know, that kind of thing. And basically we played outside and we went in the woods and made forts and picked blueberries and, you know, skipped stuff. We were by the water, the whole thing. And so when you're a young person to have that kind of a childhood, I reflect on it now as an adult with my own daughter, is that it was it was really helpful for me as a creative person and storyteller because we had to use our imagination so much as a kid 
then I know that that really helped me develop into what I do today. But the biggest probably factor uh, for me was growing up in a household of a first responder. So Mm -hmm. my late dad, uh, Basil, everybody called him Baz, Baz Landry, was a longtime, long-serving Halifax Fire Department firefighter. That's now Halifax Regional Fire and Emergency. And for those people listening to the podcast, Halifax Fire uh, Service is the oldest fire service on record in Canada. So it's a real story oh, cool. past with the with the Halifax Fire Service and Dad. Dad was uh, most of my childhood. He you know was serving as an active member and he also retired as a captain. And so I lived in a firefighting first response culture uh, right. that my dad would take me to the fire stations and we'd climb all over the trucks <laughs> and we'd go to the Christmas parties where Santa was there every year and would yeah. give the children of of the firefighters gifts. And then uh, the firefighters even today do a lot of philanthropy philanthropy work in the community, toy drives and other kinds of meals and things like that. And dad did that too with his peers. There was always a culture of giving and family and taking Mm -hmm. care of one another. And my dad was, he was so proud to be a firefighter. And he was, I mean, the people that I've talked to and interviewed told me he was a good firefighter and and anybody who's listening who's a firefighter that's a huge compliment when a firefighter or firefighters say he's a good firefighter that's probably the the best compliment you could get and they they used to say that about dad and you know i know the fire service was like a second family to him Mm -hmm. that's the way he viewed it and um you know they had each other's backs and so that all doesn't need to be explained to me as a writer or a journalist. I get it because I lived it. Right. And uh, I'm very proud. I mean, I mean, very caps proud to be the daughter of a firefighter. So that's really how I started my writing was after dad died. I didn't do any of this um, while he was living. And it's funny how things happen. You know, we talk about things happening for a reason. Uh, and I, you know, my dad passed in 2006 and I miss him every day, but I feel like one of the silver linings in his passing is that I get to meet people like you guys that have gone on to do advocacy work in Canada for first responders and frontline workers, public safety personnel, military, veterans, families. Mm-hmm. We know families are huge. And that's all because of my own family. Yeah, very cool. I I mean, we we haven't really talked to, I guess uh, we do see the generational stuff, right? Where we talk to, you know, no one becomes a corrections officer. It's not like the dream they had growing up, but lots of them, their parents were corrections officers or whatever. So they fall into that career by generational stuff. But I don't think we've actually talked to anyone who grew up in a firefighting or firefighter family isn't a firefighter now or um so for you what was did your dad obviously work shift work right uh how many how many kids in your family it's just me just they broke the mold and believe me my 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 parents would say that one of you is enough it's all good (laughs) but yeah dad dad did shift work and then what he did and as uh, as a lot of firefighters do uh, they would have some other kind of job or gig they would do on their mm-hmm. off days. And so my dad's uh, brother, he had several siblings, and one of his uh, brothers, Kenny, uh, was a great carpenter. So he taught my dad a lot of skills of how to create something out of nothing. And my dad would pretty much build you anything. So he was a great carpenter. And he also, when he retired, uh, he was one of those people that you know, didn't like to sit around a lot. I'm very much the same. I always have to be Mm -hmm. like puttering around. And dad did a lot of (laughs) model building. So he made a lot of ships. And the last model that he made me was when I turned 40, he made me a beautiful big schooner and gave it to me for my 40th birthday. And it's one of my most prized possessions is this beautiful schooner with the full under full sail. You know, it's all the little rigging and it's all to scale. And so, yeah, dad was a highly creative person. So I know I get a lot of that uh, from him. But the thing is, like in my bio that you read online, is I started really, stories for me were something that he introduced to me. So my dad would tuck me in at night as, I mean, a little kid. And this is important for people to hear listening to the podcast, because you never know what influences people early, early on in life. And at night, dad would tuck me in and he would make up these stories out of his head. Now, they all sort of had a similar theme, which I get as an adult. You know, once upon a time, 
there was this little girl who would go into the woods because we live near the woods and some magical thing would happen and then she would get safely home. That doesn't mean there were challengers or things of might have been a little scary in the woods, but it all worked out in the end. So he did this over and over again. And then my mom, my late mom, Teresa, loved mysteries and was a big reader. So I grew up loving mysteries and mystery shows, so suspense thrillers. So I got a real mix between my mom and my dad about stories and storytelling. Uh, And then my dad was a huge news person. So he would read the newspaper, you know, I mean, some people still get a hard copy, but whatever. His thing was the hard copy newspaper, and he would read that thing front to back. So he would read it from the front to the back and then the back to the front. He totally was up on world events, could have a conversation with you about anything. And he always used to say to me as a teenager now, like, you got to start reading the newspaper, Janice. And I'd be like, I'm a teenager. I'm all like <laughs> doing stuff we're not going to talk about on this podcast. <laughs> and, you know, like the typical teen, I'm like, yeah, dad, whatever. And it was yes. so funny because I went on to like train in journalism school and I am a journalist and I worked at CTV Atlantic for 12 years full time. So dad's early influence on both news and storytelling really led to me in a career. And of course, I still love mysteries and suspense thrillers. They're still my favorite. And that's because of mom. And it's so interesting to see those things come together, right? To be like, okay, how did I end up here? Mm -hmm. Right? Like one of the things that uh, brought me to corrections uh, is, well, I met the psychologist, but then I was, we were having a conversation one night and it was with a bunch of people. And I said something about how I thought like gangs were cool. And this friend brought me this book and it was called Monster. And it was about like, like bloods and crips and this whole entire like and I was like this is cool like I was like I think I read that book in one day which I don't think I ever read a book up until that point unless I was like at Cole's notes trying to just get through high school um or a textbook sometimes a textbook yeah it's interesting to to be able to look back on those moments and be like hey this is the thing that shaped me this is the thing that drove me it could Which be you one maybe, thing yeah and you maybe don't recognize it at the time right when you look back because I mean Lauren you and I in corrections it was like what are we doing But when you look back now, you're like, that's what led me there. Like this moment or that moment or like journalism for you. Right. It was huge. But at the time you were choosing that, you probably weren't consciously thinking, well, my dad or any of that. Right. So it's it's all really cool. To be honest with you, I struggled with whether to go into that or marine biology because I wanted to be a diver. I love the ocean. Right. I grew up next to the ocean, like literally surrounded our house on three sides. And I really right up to grade 12, I was trying to decide whether to go into journalism or marine biology and become a diver. Wow. Um, And uh, I know I made the right choice, but I'm still happiest near the ocean. And it's funny that you talk about that because I know you talk about resiliency and growth through adversity and all these different subjects. And for me, I think it's a really important conversation to have because it is like, it's tough, right? It's, it's been a tough old go for people the last few years on top of everything else. It's just been hard. And so I think, you know, it's important to look at in each individual, what is something for them that's a bit of a release. And for me, I'm always happiest outside because I grew up as a kid playing outside. Mm -hmm. I can go outside, even walk around the block, go in my yard for 10 minutes and I feel better than I did if I've been stuck inside all day. Mm -hmm. So that's just me. And I'm always happier near the water. So each person listening has to think about that. Like if music, I listen to music every day, it's a huge part of my life. You know, you're dancing around the kitchen while you're cooking or uh, maybe it's crafting. It could be a sport playing hockey. It could be just about anything. But I think when you become an adult, sometimes you get away from, and this is a really important message, you get away from those things that you did when you were younger that just brought joy into your life. And it could be silly stuff. It could be anything. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that we have to reflect on that. You know, for me, because I worked full time in news, I got away from just writing for writing's sake, which I do a lot more of now. And I like just creating stuff out of nothing. Mm-hmm. So, um, and a lot of people do, if you knit or paint or dance or, or my husband plays the drums, he's very musical. So I do think that's important for all of your listeners to really think about is, is there something that when I was a kid 
or a youth, I always did this. And geez, you know what? I kind of got away from that. What could be the value of reintroducing that just even a little bit into your, not even maybe daily life, but just maybe every week, I'm going to get out a little more and do this, that, or the other thing and just see where it takes you. And, and you know what, you, you talk about that because, and we, we have had people come on here and say like, uh, my therapist has said this, or they've asked me questions about this. And I, I did a, a workshop recently with this guy who was telling me about how, like, he hasn't played his guitar in however long. And Steve kind of has the same story. Steve, Our friend yeah. Steve has the same story. It's like, well, where's the guitar? Oh, it's in the basement. I'm like, bring it up, put it in the living room, right? If you can see it, you might take it for 10 minutes. But to think about like, oh, I'd have to go downstairs, get the guitar, tune it, you know, our brain thinks one too, too many. Uh, yes. But if you're, if it's right there and you're ready to go, and, and I love to do that for myself to say like, okay, these are the things that I really want to incorporate into my day. They might not always happen, but at least I'm conscious of them, right? Like I'd like to get out for a walk. I'd like to, like today, I don't know if it's this, um, it's probably not the same for you, Janice, but for Sharon, like the hoarfrost, I love saying that actually, hoarfrost. Uh, I know what hoarfrost is. Yeah. Hoarfrost. I love it. It's, you I should it see too. it here today. It's like unbelievable. And I'm just like stood outside as I got the kids off to school and I was like, oh my God. This it's is so incredible. pretty. So yeah. pretty, right? So crappy out, but so gorgeous when you so don't, pretty. when there's a window in between. <laughs> yeah, so we, Like, right, like we're in Halifax, we get, you know, right playing by the ocean. Like today we're waiting for some rain. So right now it's gray and overcast here. It's not cold. The last few days have been, but the rain is coming and you can feel it. And if you're mm. from, you can smell it. I, I can tell the rain is coming. I, I, I'm another, I'm a meteorologist in my other life. <laughs> Just ask any maritimer. They'll talk to you about the weather forever. So uh, yeah, no, it's, it's good. But being, being, in, you know, having things like that impact you is really important and realizing that. And this is going to sound really silly too, but another thing I like to do is I like to take baths. So when I get stressed, my husband, my husband and daughter will know if I'm like really stressed out, I'm like, I'm going to take a bath. And what I mean by that is I need time to think, and it's just me alone in the tub. And I have my little bath salts and my candle and all that stuff. And I'm a firefighter's daughter. So I'm careful. Trust me. I'm careful with the candles. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, for baths, I'm careful, but I do. And it's weird because I do a lot of my good thinking in there. And so, and actually you were talking about my book before this, Silver Linings, which is all yeah. about using gratitude um, to build resiliency in our mental health. And there are global experts that study gratitude and the use yeah. of gratitude. And of course, we don't mean, oh, I'm grateful for when things are going really well and you're running through fields of daisies. It's trying to lean into gratitude when things are tough, right? When the, right. Go when the tough gets going. And so you know, for example, this year we lost my mother-in-law, my mother-in-law, Betty died. Uh, and it was, it was a rough spring, you know, winter and spring. And we, when we miss her dearly, but, you know, you try to see that the, the brightness and the goodness in some of those tough times, like for example, she helped, she had her independence till very late in her life and all the joy that she brings us still to this day. And we honor her. So you're trying to bring gratitude in, in tough times. So I was in the tub one night going, okay, I, I know I want to work on a new book. And what logically is a storyteller in a, in a story arc? Where is the story going from gratitude as human beings? Where should I take this thing? Now we're in COVID. It's sucking for a lot of people. It's scary. People are getting sick. People are dying. They're losing businesses. So I thought, what are some of the themes? Because I always look for the big themes that we can connect to no matter where we are living or what our cultural background is, or age, training. And I thought, well, coming out of gratitude, I, I'd like to hear some stories uh, about love, about hope, and about empathy. And to me, in the human existence, if you take love, hope, and empathy out, we're really in big trouble. Big mm -hmm. trumps. Mm -hmm. And I like to just underline to people that in this new piece, which is called Eye of the Ocean, that's the name of the book, the love that I'm talking about, because not everybody has a significant other. Right. So I wanted to make it clear, and I have a leading mental health expert in Canada talking about this. I'm not talking about necessarily the love from human to human. It's having a passion in your life, something you love that makes you, when you get up in the morning, like what you guys are doing with this podcast or your frontline service that, you know, that call to help the community or call to action 
it could be sports, it could be dance, it could be painting, it could be animals, it could be advocacy, it could be anything. But the importance in your mental health of having something that you love, uh, and again, maybe going back to something you used to do you don't do anymore and bringing that back in, that's the type of love that I'm talking about in my new book. I think it's important, right? And for me, I got away from writing. Even though I was a kid, I used to sit at an old, one of those old school desks. So, you know, like, you know, I'm dating myself here. You could put all your books and crap in. And I used to have one of those old beat off desks in my room. And, uh, you know, we didn't have a lot of money growing up or whatever. So you had to use your imagination. And I'd sit at this desk as a kid writing stories for fun. Mm -hmm. And then because later when you're an adult and you have to pay bills and you have responsibilities, Sometimes those things go on the back burner and you Mm -hmm. look at it later in life and go, you know, why am I not doing some of this? Mm -hmm. And so I'm really, I feel really grateful that um, even though it took the loss of the most influential person in my life, who was my dad, my mom was too, but dad and I were super close. And, um, you know, I learned work ethic and stuff from him that to be able to bring writing back in because of him to honor our public safety personnel is it the biggest, I don't want to call it a joy because it's a huge responsibility, but I feel really good about it. It's like mm-hmm. something good has come out of something bad. And so that's, a, that's a win. We'll take that as a win. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. And we, and Sharon and I talk about that often, like our experience led us to reconnect outside after, you know, we, we, we saw each other at big events or whatever. And then all of a sudden we just during COVID started calling each other more often because our conversations were like so funny and hilarious. So funny. And then one day we're like, we should record this shit. This is good stuff. And <laughs> and here we are, right? Like, and, and, here and we that, are. that would not have brought, and, and it was so interesting because Sharon and I have that uh, talked on the phone. And, and I, as I'm telling her, as I'm, as I'm coming out saying like, Hey, Sharon, by the way, I, like I was struggling really hard with my mental health then. And this is what's happening. And this is, and she was just like, really? I would, I wouldn't have guessed that, but yeah. like she was struggling too. Right. And then mm-hmm. as we're like c- collaborating the stories, we're like, oh, wow. I wonder how many of us were really we're going actually, through yeah. something significant. And we didn't even know, because if you tell somebody, oh, that's yeah. going to get back to work. And then you're the front desk is it person. A, if you tell I, someone, is it a sign of weakness? Even yes. though it's oh, yeah. not a sign of weakness. And I mean, seeing the back then it was right. Oh, and the totally. culture and the culture, the, the culture more so than, mm-hmm. I don't know the timing, but back then it was like, you don't show any sign of weakness there ever. Right. Mm-hmm. 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 Right. Because if you did, it could, someone could take advantage of that. Mm-hmm. Right. There's well, all kinds of ways to take advantage of it. Or, right. you know, someone could be like, oh, well, I'll just take over Lauren's position because she told so and so that this and right, whatever. That she's yeah. tired or she's drunk or she had, you, you know, a Neo Citron cocktail. I think <laughs> about that all the time too. Like some of the things we were told then to help deal with some things that we were approaching our shift leaders with, you know, like, it's funny. We were told to me- self-medicate, right? Like, well, you know suck, what? Here's the thing, though. Like, when my dad joined the fire service, so dad joined the fire service in 1957, and he retired in 1988. And I mean, there's no, there was none of this. No. When my no. There, there was no term PTSD. There was no term of, of resiliency. None of this sort of thing uh, was talked about. You know, growth through adversity. None of it. There was none of this discussion. And, and, you know, basically what it was is you were at a bad scene or whatever. Here's a 40, go home and have some drinks and we'll see you for your next shift. And I've like I've interviewed many, many frontline people from across Canada and the U.S. And it's the same thing. It's nobody's fault. That's just the way it was. Mm -hmm. Nobody talked about I'll tell you who talked when you went to a bad fire. And I mean, again, I'm not I'm not a firefighter from talking to dad and other people. You talk to your peers because they were there and they walked the walk and they knew how bad the call was. Mm-hmm. But you didn't just generally talk in the public. You go back to the fire, start back to the firehouse and have your meal and talk, or everybody would go out and have a bunch of drinks and they talk there. But that they never talked anywhere else because mm-hmm. no, how how would anybody else understand? Because you, you were the only one that was there, you know, at the thing. 
So, I mean, there was no, I I feel, I feel, and I think we have to recognize this with our veterans. There are definitely veterans and I advocate for them too, that didn't have some of the access to services. I'm not saying it's great now, but it's certainly better than it was back in the fifties and Mm sixties. And some of those people uh, that are older today, like they, you know, they, they're having flashbacks. They're having a hard time too. And we have to be there for them. They still matter today, even though they're not, responding to tones or whatever or they're not on their shift and uh, i feel for them i think about my dad and his peers and and some of the shit that they went through and who was really there for them right Mm -hmm. i mean Mm -hmm. you know the saying you guys have heard it when we know better we have to do better and guess what we all know better so i i call on all three levels of government across canada to step up Right. Put your your money where your mouth is like, let's get some let's get some uh, support services. Let's do some more preactive training so that the youth that are training to come out and do these jobs uh, are better prepared. Right. More proactively instead of let's just react, react, react. Yeah. And that's be how it has proactive. been. Right. Very reactive. Right. Reactive. Like now look at us with the I mean, Edmonton is is talking about this hugely like the housing, like affordable housing. And, and I would say, and I know the statistics are quite high for veterans that are homeless, right? Because oh, absolutely. they struggle mentally, so they can't hold jobs, they can't budget finances, they can't, right? So uh, there is there is a crisis happening, mental health crisis overall, but with our first responders as well, because it's definitely getting better, but it's that older generation, a little bit older than like Sharon and I that aren't talking still. And and you know what? As as, as Canadians, shame on us. Yes. Absolutely. That you would have someone who's a veteran yes. who has served their country and now is being treated like that. Shame on us. That, that should absolutely. not be happening, absolutely. in my opinion, at all. Absolutely. And we have the same a problem with uh, affordable housing here in Halifax. It's the worst it's ever been. During COVID, a lot of people moved into this area. There's uh, definitely a housing crisis here. It's on the news all the time. And it's it's just a sin. It's like, again, when we know better, we have to do better. Now, I'm not saying you can just snap your fingers and you have a solution overnight. But now that we know, we have to be planning down the road, right? We, mm-hmm. we just can't oh, well, it's bad. It's just terrible. We'll just have some more temporary shelters or yes, we have to help people now, but what are we planning to do for five years down the road or whatever? Because yeah. the situation isn't going to just you know magically fix itself. But the veteran mm. thing that really pisses me off. Oh yeah, off. me too. And I, you yeah. have someone that went over and deployed over whatever war and now they come back and their own country treats them like this. I yeah. don't think so. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you. It is like, yeah. And I, I I've talked to so many veterans that, uh, you know, going through, you know, different disability things or workers compensation or V back or whatever it is. And it's like, they just want to like, yeah. Pull their own hair out. I mean, I'm sure it's, I, I don't want to use like a, a significant term, but I mean, right. They're, yep. they're at the, they're at the breaking point. Because, they're at their wit's end. Yeah. Because and it's obstacle trying, after yeah. obstacle. Yes. After the barriers obstacle. that keep arising for them. It's like, I just can't get a break. And it's the ones that have the fight in them still, which when you're dealing with a mental illness, you don't have it in you. You're barely, no. you're barely surviving. Some yeah. people, you know, you get a little oomph and you're like, fuck these guys. I'm going <laughs> Right. But then it sizzles off and then they're like, oh, good. They stopped calling or stopped emailing. Right. And then right back at it. So we know it goes through those ebbs and flows. But yeah, I agree with you. Shame on us and shame on on, on our government for not um, t- taking those things under control, because there are so many other things that are deemed important that I'm like, what? I know. <laughs> what? Yeah, I, I mean, know. like, I'm not saying that we haven't made advances because we like, have if you yeah. know, for me, like, you know, we were joking about the number of books, but seriously, like this year was my sixth book. So I've been doing, I'm on, um, each one takes about two years. I have zero. I have zero. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's a lot of work. So at the beginning, when I first started doing this to where we are today, I have seen things get better, but there is, but when you go out and talk, uh, like just go out into the community and start talking to people over long conversations, like, you know, face to face, Yes, it's getting better, 
but we have so much work yet to do, right? Mm -hmm. I'm glad that, you know, people like you guys are getting out these messages out there in these important podcasts where we're having conversations that we feel comfortable enough to come out and say, here's what I've experienced. Here's what I've, what I know, here's what I've learned and still be willing to do better. Cause we have to, we have to do better, mm -hmm. but you know, I'll use myself as an example because nobody should feel guilt or shame, but they do, but they do. And so uh, when I was young and I came out of journalism school, I went to the university of King's college here. I uh, started working at CTV and I've written a book about this. One of my books uh, is called The Legacy Letters. And when I was a really young girl in my 20s, like early 20s and came out of school, I was a crime reporter. And I spent significant amount of time on the streets talking with uh, people who worked in the sex trade, homeless mm -hmm. youth, varying people. I always had a really high interest in social issues and looking at why people were where they were. So people make assumptions when they see people. Why? Oh, you know, get a job or do this. But no mm -hmm. one stops to talk to anyone about why are they living this way or what decisions have they made, which I did a lot of that. And I'm really proud about it. But in crime reporting, I spent a significant amount of time talking to families who had missing young women or murdered young women. Mm -hmm. And at the time, there were, uh, police believe here in Halifax in Nova Scotia, there were one, if not two, serial killers operating in the province. And um, they never came out and said that, but if you covered any of the news, it, it, a lot of reporters covered this sort of stuff. And a number of the cases that I covered that are still unsolved, um, either, again, all involving girls that were probably a little younger than me, but only a few years. So contemporaries. So I had no training. There was no resiliency training for people that would work around trauma. And it's not just corrections and fire and police and paramedics who work around trauma. It's social workers and people like me. Who's on the other side of the tape? All kinds of people. People who are war mm -hmm. correspondents. We can go on and on. Funeral mm -hmm. directors, you know, tow truck tow truck drivers. Mm -hmm. I could go on and list you the people who work around trauma all day long. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until later in my career when I started doing this type of research and writing that I realized that the, the stories that I had done as an early young journalist around like how there's no book that tells you how to go sit with a family whose kids missing. Mm -hmm. and, and, and have a conversation about that. And what is the ramification around these types of conversations? So I wrote this book. Um, it was something I felt I had to do because I asked a lot of the people I interview. Uh, a lot of them, you know, they're telling me some of the most difficult things that have happened to them or their thoughts. So I went back to these, the most difficult cases I've ever covered. And I, I, I don't have, I've never been diagnosed with PTSD uh, but I do believe that um, my many years of working as a crime reporter on the front lines of some of these horrific cases, I would say I had like cumulative stress or something like that mm -hmm. because it got to the vicarious point where- Vicarious trauma? Yeah, yeah exactly. Mm -hmm. Vicarious trauma, something to that point because I remember sitting in the newsroom and they would come down from the morning meeting to say, you know, you're doing this story and you're doing, and I just dreaded it because I was the crime person. So when you, and I had a lot of contacts- broke a lot of stories. So they're going to look to you because you're mm -hmm. the expert and you don't get really a break from it. So you're always around the underbelly of things. Mm -hmm. Now you guys can relate to what I'm talking to. Mm -hmm. And that had a cumulative effect on me. I'm, I'm okay today. I'm awfully glad I don't do it anymore. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad that I can have that perspective to share with other young people training because I think that the book that I've written should be mandatory reading in journalism schools. Nobody talks about that. You mm -hmm. go and talk to the family of the young murder victim. Now, and I actually went back and talked to a couple of the families in this book. And one of them went well and one of them didn't go so well. Mm -hmm. And I asked the family of the one that it didn't go so well, can I share this? Because I want people to learn about what it is for these families to have someone like me come talk to them. Mm -hmm. What are the after effects after you leave? People don't think about that in any job that they do. They just mm -hmm. think about the job at hand that they're doing. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to be my job or your job. It could be any job. 
And then you walk away and go home. And what is the aftermath Mm -hmm. of that job? Mm -hmm. And we need to think more about that in our training of young people. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, that was the most difficult piece I've ever worked on. I carry those women, those young women victims with me. I swear to God, every day of my life, Mm -hmm. they're part of who I am. I will never forget them. I pray for justice for their families and for them. Uh, It still hasn't happened. Um, But I had, I felt I had to do that to be super honest and transparent with the people who read my books. And uh, I have to say though, that was, that was, that was like ripping a bandaid off an old wound for me. It was tough. Mm, I bet. I bet to sit with those. I mean, I, I haven't personally done it, but my husband delivers like next of kin um, information. He's He's a police officer and he always like every time that happens, he's like, oh, you think it might get easier, but it doesn't. Oh, no, never. Gets nobody easy. nobody no. wants to be. I've written about this in my books. Nobody wants to be the officer who does next to him mm-hmm. notifications, mm-hmm. but someone has to be. Mm-hmm. And that, and guess what? Your husband is human, just yeah. like the other family. He yeah. has to come home to his family and, and live with that. And you want to try to be as professional and, and caring and empathetic as possible. But I feel for him because no, nobody wants to do that job. Mm-hmm. But the, the family has a right to know as much information as they oh, can. Yes, they absolutely. need to know. Yeah. But my, my heart breaks for him. I mean, God bless him. Bless yeah. him for yeah. having the ha, for having the ability to go and do that to the to the highest power that he can. But mm-hmm. I do. I mean, we have to thank him for his service, too, because. Yeah, you know it's easy for other people to criticize crap. You go do it. You yeah. go do it, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. It's, and and it, it is that I would say that's probably the toughest part of of any job, right? Is you know nursing, doctor, like anything like that. I can't imagine oh, yeah. walking out of a a surgery where the family's sitting there thinking, yeah, you know, someone's coming out, and it's like, nope. There, something happened or yes. it didn't go like I can't imagine being that person I'm uh, I don't think I will ever have to be that person thank goodness but I couldn't um, personally do it either so it's funny you should bring this up because it's part of the reason one of the things I've done with my new book which I'll get to is yes, back when do. I was a kid so living with dad as, as the firefighter I remember one time it was right around Christmas time and I was very little so I can't tell you if it was my mom who told me this or my dad because I was too young to remember but what I do remember is my dad sitting at the kitchen table having his meal and he was not himself and I could tell his whole body language he was quiet and sullen and it was communicated to me by either my mom or dad that he had been at a fire where a child had died and dad always said to me that anything involving children was the absolute worst call or incident Uh, And I think, of course, anybody listening to this would agree with that. Anything, whether the child's at a a hospital or whatever it is and involved in an accident or some kind of an incident. And and so he wasn't himself. And so this new book that uh, I've done called Eye of the Ocean, uh, I'm donating all the proceeds that I would have made. I'm not making a dime off this book. This is a work of philanthropy for me. And all the money is going to a group here in Nova Scotia called the Hans East Assisting Refugees Team, the Heart Society of Nova Scotia. And the Heart Society is a group that helps at-risk refugee families globally. So they bring refugee families out of places like Syria, right now the Ukraine, Mm -hmm. and they try to help them get to safety because they're going to die if they don't get out, basically. Mm -hmm. So uh, in 2019, we had a really bad fire here in Halifax. It made national and international headlines. And a family that the Heart Society had brought over from Syria called the Barho family, uh, a refugee family from Syria, had seven children and tragically all of their children died in a fire, a house fire. And I thought of my dad. I thought if that day I saw him, I think if I worked with the fire service doing their internal magazine feed line here. So I know a lot of firefighters. And, you know, you just can't imagine how this affected our city and province. Like it was just absolutely beyond gut-wrenching, beyond anything that you can imagine losing seven beautiful children. So I, I thought, you know, where dad was a firefighter, my grandfather opens the book. It was an immigrant from Bulgaria. I thought, you know, I'm going to I'm going to honor my family and I'm going to honor the Barho family who lost her children, the firefighters, the other frontline workers. 
um, by, by doing this. I'm going to create this piece about love, hope, and empathy, and I'm going to give all the money I would have made to the Heart Society. So I think, wow. thank you. And I, and I feel really good about it. And I, I really, so good. I think that we have to show this family or families like them that we really genuinely do care. Like it's easy to have lip service, yeah. but this is what I can do. And, and I'm not Stephen King. This isn't going to make zillions of dollars, but it doesn't matter. The point is, right. whatever it is, it's going to help in its own way. It, so it, you my, did the work and it's not about the result, right? It's about yeah. like, here's what I am contributing. Here's what I have control of. And exactly. it, it's left here and it will do amazing things, right? And the oh. thing is, Lauren, is that everyone can do that. So yeah. you, you could be somebody's kid writes a Christmas card to an elderly person in a senior's home. It could be, it doesn't have to cost a lot of money. No. Right. People mm-hmm. always associate things, but you can give of your heart and of your time and you can cook a meal for someone. You can take cookies to someone who doesn't get out of the house. There's all kinds of little things that if we show love, hope and empathy to one another and my, and my God, guys, like, look what we just come through in the, with the, with, the pandemic and we're still dealing with it mm-hmm. it's like I mean, you know we can help one another we have to so i feel really passionately about this piece it's a real i'm saying it's a work of the heart for heart and mm-hmm. i i am proud of it and it is honoring my my late firefighter father and my grandfather who came from bulgaria my mother the, the people who taught me these main things you know um and i do hope it helps the heart society and i hope that the people that know the Barho family and, and maybe the parents will hear my message. Um, it, it's a, regardless, pe- some people will, and they know that we generally as Canadians truly care. And so it's mm-hmm. true. It's, you know, you're not here with me in Halifax, but I have a lot of support across Canada, mm-hmm. people who get what we're all trying to do together, right? It does take a team. And there's actually a leading um, mental health expert in my book because name's Dr. Alan Abbas, and he has this chapter called Return to the Village. And I uh, think that's what we're trying to do. We're trying mm-hmm. to come back together. And in his piece, he talks about um, the lack of supports for young families that leads to trauma with children so that we have to have support systems from age zero to five. And if we can have stability in there, it's going to help later down mm-hmm. the road with mental mm-hmm. health issues with adults. So he's saying in Europe, they do a lot of stuff returning to the village where they come into a a new family with a new baby. Can we help you? What do you need? They're there as the village for each other. And I love that sentiment and that message because it doesn't matter where it's whether it's whether you staring outside today at the horror frost or me down waiting for the rain in Halifax, Mm -hmm. we're all part of a village because we actually care about one another. Mm -hmm. And you guys talked about, you even said during COVID, the two of you were started talking. So we couldn't get together, but look, people tried to get together, didn't they? They tried to connect because empathy is a huge and hope. It's everything. You guys are living proof of it. You said it minutes ago. Yeah. So that's part of the village. You've created your own little village mm-hmm. with this podcast and you just keep the ripple effect just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And, and, and bigger. we have said that, like we, when we started doing this, we were like begging our friends from the jail. We're like, come, just come on. We'll like get what, whatever you want. We'll give it to you. To get we'll give it to you. Going. And now we have like a list of like, a hundred people that, that are on. that want to be on it we're like okay right like and sure yeah that community and that um that village that you talked about of like okay how can I help you and and now it's like we're literally getting messages like what about this person hey we want to connect you with this person hey mm-hmm. you should hear this person's story oh my god like that's how we learned about you Janice is it was through Wendy it. right yeah through Wendy, Wendy. Wendy through was like Wendy. oh my god have you talked to Janice oh. <laughs> I Wendy. love Wendy yeah. isn't oh, she yeah. amazing she's, she's amazing. so amazing yeah I mean amazing. she has Wendy Lund has and I've interviewed Wendy for for one of my books and I've known Wendy for years and Wendy's one of the few people in Canada who has her master's in mindfulness and I mean you want to talk about gratitude she's a person to talk about gratitude with because she will it's funny because i taught she taught me a few things about me you know like i'm one of those people i'll watch the nightly news and a lot of people are going to be listening to this will relate 
and <clears throat> somebody who's not so nice does something like, for example, drives down a sidewalk and most people down. Mm-hmm. We've seen this. Mm-hmm. And I'd be like the first person, that person's going to pay and they've got to do this. And I get all wound up about someone's going to pay. Now, I told you I used to be a crime reporter. So I've seen and heard a lot of stuff that the general public hasn't. Stuff that yes. you can't put on the news mm-hmm. because you, you just can't. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that we don't see it and hear it. It just right. means we have to filter it so that the general public can. And, you know, you think about how does all that affect you? And so and I had a conversation with Wendy. And she's like, you know, did you ever think about what led the other person to the point where they did this act? I'm like, well, no, because I react right away and I yeah. just want them to like, oh, they're going to pay. Right. Mm-hmm. But she's like, we actually have to look at if we have to study why these things happen in order to understand them, if we're going to try to prevent other things or help people or whatever. And I'm like, yeah. You're right. Why do I always jump to this person's a horrible person and they've got to pay? And mm-hmm. and I think, you know, I learned to check myself. I'm not saying I still don't do that to some extent. Well, yeah, we all do it, right? We all but, do but, it. But I think she raises a very valid point that if we're actually going to get into, like, she's very into pro- being proactive and preventative stuff, preventative res- and resiliency building, um, that we do have to look at the whys Right. Not just always mm-hmm. react because we see the next big headline that is horrible. And of course, you're going to be upset about it. Mm-hmm. But then she takes it a step further. And I think that, uh, you know, she's a really brilliant lady. Brilliant lady. She reminds me of yes. do you know who Gabby Bernstein is. Yes, I, know yeah. I don't I don't personally know. them. Okay, I, well, no, she's. I, I don't personally know her either. You're probably the only author I know. Um, <laughs> oh, no, that's not true. I know and Gloria Kelly. And we know Gloria. Know Gloria. Do you know Aaron Sky Kelly? Oh yeah, and Gloria Joint Lane. Uh, no, she it 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 was a book that she wrote about judgment detox and just really checking yourself about like. And I remember being in the grocery store one day, thinking like, "Back lady, you should dye your hair. Like your roots are like all the you like." And then I'm like, "Why? Why would I think that?" who cares about that? Like, but like, exactly. it's like just that hair. Is real, yeah. Like that's important. That would be important to me a few years ago. Right. And now I'm like, okay, but if someone doesn't like me, cause I have roots, fuck them. Right. Like yeah, exactly. kind of where I've gone because I'm like, I, who the fuck am I to give a shit about that lady's hair? So I, I've the same as you, I've kind of checked myself to say like, Maybe she doesn't have any money to get her hair done. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe this is she's all... happy with her wearing. Maybe her she look. doesn't care. Maybe she doesn't yeah. care. Maybe she's growing it out. Maybe she's yeah. growing it out. Like at that, at, and I that that just like there was a message in that book that kind of just allowed me to do that and be like, it's none of my business actually, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Or or explore it. Like think like, hey, maybe it's not because of what I think it is. And, and same with the criminals. I mean, when I worked in the prison, I was like, I was a very jaded individual, but now, but I also uh, had the opportunity to work in a women's shelter for a couple of years, which really brought me down a few notches to say like, these are not shitty people. These are, these are people that have been through shitty things. Right. And, and sitting with a a lot of women and understanding where, like, I would love, like people would get mad at me in the shelter because they're like, don't talk to them for so long because when you do that, then we all have to do it. Right. (laughs) But I really, I really loved their stories. I really wanted me to tell, I wanted them to tell me everything, like start from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and then they would kind of like really, like start to unravel and be like, Oh, this is because I know telling my story has helped heal me. Right. Yes. And sharing the same thing. Right. So I'm like, tell me your story. Tell me where this started. Tell me what was significant about this. And then they're like, oh, my God, I had no idea that that's where all of right. And getting those like aha moments is like amazing. But understand understanding people with empathy and compassion and not You're judging right. off the like, oh, OK, well, you know, I would see in a, in a document. Oh, well, you came from here. Well, that's why. Right. But not knowing the history of the story, even everything that's come out with like um, all that uh, Aboriginal stuff. And like, it's like, I had no idea any of that happened. I didn't know. Mm -hmm. I didn't know any of that. And I worked in a prison that was like 80 percent Aboriginal. Right. So now if you took the knowledge of what's come out and different, all the graves being found and the different things, if you took that now, if you the knowledge 
and obviously have huge empathy. Of course, we all do as Canadians. It's just an absolute outrage. It's horrible. And if you took that and transitioned to look at, you know, why is a person acting this way? Well, if you know, you know, I, I can't know because I it's not my own culture and background. But we can at least try to have better empathy. At least I see, it's wonderful that you're trying to apply what you know now to what you're doing. It's all, it's the same thing what I told you about when I worked younger, as younger as a crime reporter. I, I kind of wish in a way I could go back and do those stories again with what I know now, mm-hmm. right? You think yeah. you're doing the best. All you can do is the, the best with what you have at the time. But as you go along, and I mean, you get older and you have more life experience. And for me, you have losses. I've lost both my parents and I've lost my mother-in-law. So, you, you know, the life kicks you in the, in the gut a few times and you learn stuff. And then you apply that. Your lens is a little different. Um, totally. You know, things like you said, I don't care if my roots show my hair. It's just hair. Like, who yeah. cares? Yeah. It's not in the big scheme of things. But it's it's good that you're thinking that way because empathy is a huge thing and it does... You know, we have to sort of view each other with that. And it makes me think of going back to when I was at the same time working as a crime reporter, doing a lot of these social issues. And I went out for many, many times on the streets to talk to the uh, the men and the women working in the sex trade. And I got to know a number of them and they were all very nice people that. I mean, except for one person who who got upset with me and didn't want to talk to me, uh, most people were very uh, welcoming and because no one talks to them. Nobody mm-hmm. comes out to say, OK, you know, how, how are you being treated? Are you safe? Do you need what, what you need? Why are you why are you there? And that sort of thing. And showing yeah. some empathy that they're as much as your husband that does the next to 10 notifications, the person that's just a, that's somebody's daughter or son or, or partner or whatever we have to see that right we have to have empathy for for one another it doesn't matter what we do we're, we're called on to try to help one another mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. absolutely yes. well oh my god this is i swear we could probably talk for hours i know we need part two <laughs> that's okay i appreciate the time you gave me no this has been so good we appreciate this there's a lot jam-packed in here and uh we will uh provide access to like uh, your website and to the book and all of that. And um, yeah, thank you so much. This thank is you. really good. I actually, really appreciate I, it. I have so many, and it looks like as Sharon's like looking off to the side, just so you know, she's writing things down because then she yeah, doesn't so right. like, it kind of looks like Sharon's like looking at, at the soccer game or something. No, like well, I'm not. There's I no game on today. There's a TV <laughs> the other way. The yeah. <laughs> If the game was uh, but, on, I, if the game was on, I wouldn't be doing the podcast because yeah, my family true. and I are huge soccer fans. I'd be like, yeah, "All right, that's going to have to wait till after yeah, the game." But after the game, listen, <laughs> I want to just say thank, uh, thank you to both of you for having me on the podcast, and I'll thank Wendy once we were done here. Yes. I'll message her to say I was on, but I do want to say, like, you've taken what you've learned all through the course of your life and working in corrections, and look at look at what you're doing now and, and paying it forward and your ripple effect, right? And just remembering that you're part of that village and what you're doing here with your podcast is an integral part of getting that message out that we all can be a part of it somehow and do our own thing mm-hmm. and you guys are certainly proof positive of that so thank you so much and for you having too, you with yeah. your books and your messages thank you. and we appreciate you so much well that's all for this episode thanks so much for listening you can find us on instagram at from uniforms to unicorns uh, on all podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, Speaker, all of those. Also feel free to subscribe. You'll be notified of new episodes that come out and we always love a review. Also feel free to share with anybody you would enjoy. We also want to send a big thank you to Jamie Green for being our podcast editor and to Jeff Bale at Third Hell Music for our soundtrack. Thanks again, everyone. Have a great day, love. Lauren and Sharon. Bye.